through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We pray thee that thou shalt bless the word as it goes forth in this hour, and that thou shalt use it to many hearts. Thou knowest the need of the world, and thou knowest the need of thy true church. And we pray thee that thou shalt bring conviction to those who do not know thee, and growth to those who have come to the knowledge of Christ. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been studying together for the last few weeks in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, the story of the letters to the seven churches of Asia. We have seen that these churches all existed simultaneously at the time they, these letters were written, that they are also typical of churches that exist today, and that furthermore, they are a series showing the progress and development of the church throughout its history. From the time of the apostolic age, the age of suffering martyrs, the time when the church went into the blackness of the dark ages, and then at Sardis, the time of the Reformation. And out of the living death of Sardis flow two streams, Philadelphia, in which there is nothing to rebuke, and Laodicea, in which there is nothing to praise. To each of the churches, the risen Lord Jesus Christ presents himself in a different character and always in keeping with the need of the church. The titles chosen for the addresses to the first five churches are all taken from the description by which he reveals himself in the first chapter of this book. All of them are more or less indicative of judgment. He has spoken as the one holding the churches in the right hand of authority, as the one who is risen to take that authority, the one who has the two-edged sword, eyes as a flame of fire, feet like fine brass to march in judgment against the iniquitous. It is most significant, therefore, that the titles by which he reveals himself to the church in Philadelphia are not only taken from another part of the Bible to which there has been no previous reference in the Revelation, but also that there is no suggestion of judgment. It is probably for this reason that William Penn wanted to name our great city in America, Philadelphia, after this ancient city, because it was the church in which there was nothing to rebuke. I wish we could say the same for the church in our city today. But to the church which has really desired to speak the matchless words and to sound forth the glories which shine in the Savior, he reveals himself in a personal way, quite different from anything we have seen before. You may find this in the third chapter of Revelation, beginning with verses 7 and going through the 13th verse. He begins with two of his attributes which show him to be very God, the one who is holy and who is true. In the law, he revealed himself as the Holy One. This was one of his Jehovah titles, I am holy, as he said in Leviticus 11:44. But in Isaiah, God has revealed himself in a very special way. For in the 57th chapter we read, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite one. Now when we remember that the key to the understanding of this book is the reading of every symbol through the rest of the scriptures, these quotations become more significant. The risen Jesus Christ is declaring himself to be God. In the same way, he claims to be the one that is true. Christ himself, when he was here upon earth, had prayed in that last intimate moment with the Father before the crucifixion, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Here he is claiming oneness with the Father. 
John was particularly fond of this word true, and we find it frequently in his writings. Thus he closed his first epistle, which sums up all of these declarations. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. I've been quoting 1 John 5:20. Now the church which has seen the Lord in this double revelation of holiness and truth can stand unshaken in the world. The course of the age in which we live is presented to us in 2 Thessalonians under the symbols of lawlessness and delusion. Opposite these stand holiness and truth. It is the vision of Christ as the Holy One which shall keep the true Philadelphia when the mystery of lawlessness ferments around us. It is the vision of Christ as the true that shall keep us when the whole world has fallen into strong delusion and is laughing at the believer because he will not believe the lie. The Lord further speaks of himself as the one who has the key of David. Now the concordance takes us to the only passage in the whole Bible which contains any reference to this symbol. It is the climax in Isaiah 22, the climax of the burden of the valley of vision. Hezekiah was king. The horsemen of Assyria had come up against Israel. The choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the dismayed people were able to see that the breaches of the city of David were many. And God gave to the people a definite call to repentance. We read, In that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, and to mourning, and to baldness, and to girding with sackcloth. But instead, as in many other periods of history when men have danced upon a volcano and cried, After us the deluge, the people turned to joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Their cry has become a proverb, even unto today. They said, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Their leader was one Shebna, who was the treasurer and over the house. It was to him, because of his failure to repent, that the Lord said, I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe, and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government unto his hand, and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulders, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. Now the enemy king sent messengers before the people, deriding the Lord, and saying, Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? That's a quotation from Isaiah 36. And after the messengers had spoken these words to the children of Israel, the enemy king wrote the same insulting message down and sent it to Hezekiah. The faithful king spread the letter out before the Lord, and pleading the glory of the Almighty, received the promise and the subsequent triumphant victory. The Lord protected the city. We read in 2 Kings 19.32 that not an arrow was shot against it. The promise of God was great. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. 
The bulk of the Assyrian army was killed by the direct intervention of the Lord, and the enemy king retired in confusion to his death. Now the significance of the key of David is immediately plain. It is the lordship of the son of David, Jesus Christ, over his house. After a time like Sardis, where there was nothing but nominal Christianity, the Lord himself shall take over the authority. The government shall be upon his shoulder. The enemy may come in like a flood, but one more stable than Eliakim holds the key. The world will deride or pity, but no weapon that is formed against the believer shall prosper. He opens a door of deliverance, and it cannot be closed. An hour of testing was about to come upon the world, but the true church, that of Philadelphia, should be delivered out of it. The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ would open a door, and by his own heavenly power would see to it that those who were of his own should not pass through the great tribulation. This is also indicated in the epistle to the Philippians, where we read in chapter 3, Our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change the body of our humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorified body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We cannot think with some commentators that the open door is merely that of service of which Paul wrote three times in Corinthians and Colossians. There is something far greater involved here. It is a door of deliverance from the tribulation that is about to come upon this world. The rallying center in Sardis had been a name. It was church rather than Christ. Here it is Christ rather than the church. Thus the Lord reveals himself and smiles upon those who seek him. I know thy works, we read. And so the reward was theirs. The scripture goes on to say that they had a little strength. It was not the fault of the Lord that they did not have more. The history of power in the scripture is very marked. In Psalm 62 we read, God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. But that which belongeth to God is given to Christ, for at his resurrection he said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Well, what does Jesus do with that power that has been given to him? The very last words that he spoke upon the earth before ascending into heaven refer to this. For in Acts 1.8 we read, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. It was acting upon this sequence that Paul was able to say to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Now it is to be noted that even in this Philadelphian church there was no revival of the power of the Spirit. Those who are praying for a repetition of Pentecost have no biblical authority for their prayer and show a woeful ignorance of the truth about the Holy Spirit. Pentecost will not be repeated any more than Calvary. Now this does not mean that there may not be another great time of blessing upon the church before the Lord comes. There have been many such periods before. They may perhaps occur again, but at their best they are times of little strength. The Church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. Success in Christian work is not to be measured by any other standard of achievement. It is not rise in ecclesiastical position. It is not the number of new buildings which have been built through a man's ministry. It is not the crowds that flock to listen to any human voice. All of these things are frequently used as yardsticks of success. 
but they are earthly and not heavenly measures. The strength of Philadelphia in the presence of the risen Lord lay in the fact that the believers had kept his word and not denied his name. We read in the Old Testament, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Joshua 1. The world today will laugh at the one who keeps the word of the Lord. We're asked to abandon Genesis to science, salvation by redemption to anthropology, the life of the spirit to psychology, not to speak of the Bible itself to the higher criticism. But the Philadelphian has his delight in the law of the Lord, and his whole life is lived within the sphere of the book. But there is an orthodoxy of word which is elsewhere condemned in the scripture. It has the letter without the spirit. Here the church is commended for holding the letter, but also for not denying the name of Christ. Now the name of the Lord is one of the greatest studies in the scripture. One writer has gathered 365 different names of Christ to be found in the scripture, and has written a devotional paragraph on each one as a daily help throughout the year. Yet he did not exhaust the field, for there are several which for some reason he omitted. Obviously we cannot discuss this mass of material that is included in the name of our Lord. Suffice it to say that the Lord Jesus is Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And to keep the name of Jesus Christ is to sing the characters he bears and all the forms of love he wears, exalted on his throne. It is the highest expression of individual fellowship of the soul with our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. At first glance, it would appear that the next verse leads us to an abrupt change of theme. But if we have really understood the symbol of the key of David, however, we will see that there is no change. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are of Israel and are not, but lie. Behold, I will compel them that they shall come and worship before thy feet, that they may know that I have loved thee. Sennacherib's messengers had ridiculed the Israel of God and the God of Israel. Hezekiah spread the letter before the Lord and was answered. And though the inhabitants of Israel were of small power, as we read in Isaiah 37, 27, like the Philadelphians who were of little strength, yet the Lord brought the enemy to naught in their presence. Thus will it be for those who elect to keep God's word and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How often is the true Christian ridiculed because he believes, for example, that the world came into being by the direct creative act of God. He does not deny any of the facts of modern discovery, but refuses all interpretations of those facts which deny the word and the name of his Lord. In the heart of the organized church today, there are those who claim to be a people of God. They have buildings, pastors, orders of service, hymns, prayers, Bible readings, and sermons. But they are not the people of God. They lie. They talk about the fatherhood of God and have not been born again. They despise those who would center their fellowship in a Christ who is God and a word which he has magnified above his name. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all. There is an absolute limit beyond which God will not allow them to pass. The true believer is to be patient. The day is to come when these tares in the midst of the wheat will be gathered out. All their religious pretense will not avail. They shall be revealed for what they are. The synagogue of Satan, 
though they may be baptized. Here the veil is lifted, and we are allowed to see into heaven. These false brethren are compelled to come and worship before the feet of the believers, and to know that God has truly loved those whom they despise. Now, those who keep the word of God are aware that great judgments are to come upon this world. They look about them in the world and see that the hatred which crucified Christ still reigns, and that wherever there is not active hatred, there is polite indifference to the claims of God. They know that the clouds of God's wrath have been gathering for ages, and that the judgment stroke must one day fall upon the inhabitants of the earth. Will the church pass through the great tribulation? Let the risen Lord answer this question most definitely. In our text we read, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of the tribulation, the one which is about to come on all the inhabited world, to test those dwelling on the earth. Why some interpreters of the scripture seek to twist an obscure passage or two in order to contradict a clear line of biblical teaching, we cannot understand, except that on this point they are clearly deceived of Satan. Escape was definitely promised by the Lord Jesus himself in Luke 21, 36. If the church is to come through the tribulation judgments that are to come upon this earth, then say it plainly, there is no blessed hope in the Bible. But the believer is not to presume upon the grace of God because he knows that he is to escape the vials of wrath which are to be poured out upon the inhabitants of the earth. The judgment for rewards we are to face. And the Lord says, I come speedily. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. In the Old Testament story of the key of David, Shebna had been the treasurer over the house of Israel. He did not walk in righteousness before the Lord, and Eliakim superseded him and received his reward. Paul was as certain that he would be in heaven as he was that Christ would be there. He knew that nothing could separate him from the love of God, but he walked in constant concern, lest through some willfulness he might be a castaway from his reward, a reprobate, not approved for a crown. Salvation he had. He had turned from his own righteousness and had received that which is through the faith of Christ, but he did not count himself to have apprehended the prize. For this he still pressed forward. It was only when he was about to die that the Lord revealed to him that he had apprehended, and that he was not a reprobate, that he was not a castaway, but that he had fought a good fight, and that the crown of righteousness was really his. The scene in our text had been such a quiet one that the promise to the overcomer is more striking than in the previous letters. Ephesus had lost its first love. The overcomer returned to it. Smyrna was in the midst of persecution. The overcomer stood fast in the face of it. Pergamus was about to be drowned with worldliness. The overcomer resisted the flood and stayed above it. Thyatira was being seduced by Jezebel. The overcomer resisted her blandishment. Sardis had the name to live but was dead. The overcomer did not defile himself with the corpse. But in Philadelphia, there is only commendation. There is no blame. What does the believer overcome then? The only answer lies in the fact that though there be no blame, there is warning. The danger for the believer in Philadelphia is that he shall let slip his true character, keeping the word and loving the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how many believers there are who, having begun in the spirit, seek to be made perfect in the flesh. Clearly, the one who believes that our continuation in salvation depends upon ourselves. In short, the one who does not believe in the finality of salvation cannot be counted an overcomer in the Philadelphian sense of the word. 
The crown of righteousness is for them who love his appearing and can be lost by following the seducing teachers who put any event between the believer and the rapture. But there are those who keep the Lord's word about the security of the believer and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and who are yet in danger of losing their crown. Apostasy in good works is a real danger, for the failure to live according to holiness is contrary to sound doctrine, and the believer must ever be careful to maintain good works. So the fourfold reward to him who maintains the word of, and the name of Christ in the midst of the church that is in the world is most beautiful. We read, first, he shall be made a pillar in the sanctuary of Christ's God, and he shall not go out any more. Once more, let the concordance reveal to us the meaning of this promise. The pillars are spoken of in 1 Kings 7. Solomon had two pillars cast by a fine workman. And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple. And he set up the right pillar and called the name thereof Jachin. And he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz. What are these pillars to which names are given? Joachim means he establishes. And Boaz means in him is strength. This is a fitting reward for the overcomer. He has a little strength, so he is made a pillar of strength. His very reward shall testify that he has been sustained from the beginning by the word and the name of the Lord. Henceforth, he does not go out of the presence of God anymore. Upon the overcomer also, three names are written. The Lord has revealed himself in this letter as being the one who is holy, who is true. Holiness and truth, with all else that we have seen the name of God to mean, shall be upon the believer, we read. He has been the object of his vision, so he shall see him and be like him. They have been called Philadelphians in this earth because they have been dwelling in that city, but they did not look upon that city as their home. They too have looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, and since they desired a better country that is a heavenly, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he hath prepared for them a city. They shall have upon them the name of the city of Christ's God, the new Jerusalem as a mark that they are citizens of heaven. And finally, Christ promises that the believer shall bear his new name. Toward the end of the apocalypse, this new name is revealed to us. It is King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation 19. The overcomer then is to reign with Christ forever and ever. And once more the message closes with the solemn call of the Spirit. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. No one can disclaim the warnings given here on the ground that they are addressed to a local church in John's day, which has long since passed from the earthly scene. To all who have the quickened ear comes the definite command that they are to hear not what is said to a church, but what is said to the churches. The message to each is for all. May God speak it to your heart. And our Father, we pray thee that thou shalt bless the truth to all who have listened in this hour, and bring thy people on to know thee better and love thee more. We give thee the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy great grace and faithfulness, and rejoice that thou art our God. We pray thee that, as the word goes forth in this hour, thou shalt use it to reach the hearts of men and women. Especially we pray thee for those who have named thy name and who are professing Christians. Speak to them that each one may know whether he is a possessing Christian or not. 
We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been studying together in the book of Revelation the letters to the seven churches of Asia and come today to the last of these churches, that of Laodicea. The reference is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. We have seen that these seven churches existed in Asia Minor at that time. They are also typical of churches that exist in the world today. And thirdly, they are historical epochs. Sardis was the time of the Reformation, and out of Sardis flowed the double stream, Philadelphia and Laodicea. To the one, the Lord spoke no word of blame, but now to the last of the churches, there was no word of praise. How are the mighty fallen? Laodicea was the church for which Paul had had great conflict, we read in Colossians 2. Some of his epistles were possibly written in duplicate with the name of some other church than that under which we today possess the epistles that are written in the salutation. Certainly the epistle to the Colossians was to be read to the church at Laodicea, as we read in the fourth chapter of Colossians. And they, in turn, were to read an epistle which he had addressed to the Laodiceans. Now we've seen that Philadelphia was to be removed before the tribulation. There is no such promise to Laodicea, for this is the apostate church, out of which the Lord will call some individuals, for he watches over it in love. But the main stream flows on into the great Babylon. Confusion. The apostate church. The risen Lord now speaks, and for this church, so sorely in need of judgment, he takes the character of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. It is necessary that he should speak in this character, so low had the church fallen, so far from what he had meant it to be. Centuries had now passed since the church was planted in the world. It had been born looking for the return of the Lord. As this first hope was lost, so its first love was lost. And to this church, Laodicea, the Lord now speaks. He may indeed have failed, but he is still the Amen, the faithful and true witness. We go back once more through the scriptures and find the real meaning of these titles. In Isaiah 65, 16, God is twice called the God of truth. The Hebrew is most significant. Literally, it is the God of the Amen. We find it stamped upon our Lord's speech. Every time he said what is translated in our versions by verily, verily, it was really in the Greek, Amen, Amen, a word adopted from the Hebrew. Amen, Amen, it is true, it is true. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him, and he introduces himself now as the God of all truth, who has come to confound the faithless church, who has played the harlot with the nations. And this, then, is the announcement that his testimony is true. The warnings which he pronounces shall indeed come to pass. O men may indeed say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Men have imperfect ideas of justice, and therefore have imperfect justice. But the Lord has spoken, and all shall come to pass. Years ago, Judge Campbell of Malta, from his own window, saw a murder committed, but condemned an innocent man to death after having him tortured till he confessed, because the judge believed that his private knowledge ought not to be added to the evidence brought before him officially. Not so, our Lord. 
Elsewhere we have seen that his eyes are as a flame of fire. He sees all. And here he announces the certainty of the judgments that are spoken and the certainty of his promises. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, certainty. But why does he add to his judgment titles when speaking to Laodicea that he is the beginning of the creation of God? We go back to Isaiah where he is called the Amen and find in the next verse a marvelous promise. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. Oh, how wonderful is this truth. This church of Laodicea in its nauseating condition was thoroughly known to the Lord. For we read, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. How many people there are today who fit this description perfectly. Certainly they cannot be called cold. Even more certainly they cannot be called hot. The first love has gone, and they are in no wise like the Philadelphians who yet glowed with the fire of the Spirit. In other words, they are completely indifferent. To them, the faithful witness says, I wish thou wert cold or hot. Why should the Lord desire that they should rather be cold than lukewarm? This wish of the Lord can be understood by his statement to the Pharisees at the time he had healed the man born blind. Christ said that he came into the world in order that they which see not might see, that they which see might be made blind. And he had concluded, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. So the Lord is saying here, If instead of being lukewarm, you were so cold that you should feel that coldness, then the very feeling of your need might drive you to the true warmth. But now in your lukewarmness, you've just enough to protect yourself against the feeling of need. But they did not have the true fire that comes from God in the regeneration of the soul. They did not have the true life of God. It was for this reason that they were to be spewed from his mouth. There is no more terrible image in the word of God. Smyrna, as we have seen, was the church poor in the eyes of the world, but honored by God with that great declaration, but thou art rich. Laodicea is the church rich in its own worldly eyes, which God says is poor. It declared itself to be rich and to be enriched, in short, to have need of nothing. In God's eyes, the church was wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now here is the first characteristic of the Laodicean church. It did not know its true condition. Of the church in Corinth, the Holy Spirit wrote, In everything ye are enriched by him, ye come behind in no gift. And these are things which God must say about a church, and which a church may never say about itself. The denominational orator who addresses his convention on the glories of this or that denomination, or of his own peculiar sect, or who sings of Calvin or Wesley or Darby, rather than of the one who gives the true riches, is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Worse even than the lukewarmness is the self-deception that goes with it. One of the best comments we have found on this passage describes many churches as they are today. Ottman has said, The cold proposition is sent broadcast today that if we only had the money, we would be able to convert the world in this generation. Rich and increased with goods, but nevertheless destitute of spiritual force and momentum. 
magnificent church building, imposing ritualistic services, artistic and expensive music, too often furnished by the utterly godless, high-salaried preachers who, if they are willing to take Balak's gold, are careful also to preach according to Balak's taste. Churches like these there are and without number, and it is absolutely impossible to cover their spiritual poverty with any loud boast of material prosperity. In these churches, the poor and sinful are not wanted, and they know it. And by no possibility can they be induced to come in where they know a chill waits them. These churches want quality and not quantity. To say that such churches, where no welcome is given to the poor and where the dying sons of men could get no gospel even though they were to come in, to say that such churches constitute the true church of Christ is to be a witness to the awful deception which people have so willingly imposed upon themselves. It is useless to appeal for means to convert the heathen while we ourselves remain unconverted. It would be difficult to give expression to a more refined form of selfishness than is found in some of our modern churches. The first consideration is personal comfort, the service attractive, the preaching gospel or no, popular, the pews filled, the treasury replete, comfortable, warm, and well-fed, though with the husks that the swine do eat, and conscience undisturbed by the tramp, tramp, tramp of the unregenerate without. Is this picture overdrawn? No. Is it inaccurate in any of its phrases? Yes, in its understatement. For every detail that could be added would deepen and darken the lines of condemnation. Call this Christ's church, if you will, and those on the outside do it with a sneer. Yet Christ will not own it as his, but declares, I will spew you out of my mouth. And as this has been applied to congregations, so it may be applied to individuals. There are those today who think they need nothing further from God. Yet God has said, If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Yet there are those who say that their old natures have been eradicated, or that they have now reached a state of victorious life where they sin no more. Poor, ignorant, and lukewarm Christians. The energy of the flesh may simulate the fire of the spirit, but they are wretched and miserable. God has said that if any teach that the old nature is eradicated, they are self-deceived, and the truth is not in them. But upon a church that has sunk as low as this, the risen Lord still showers his love. He is standing there, the faithful and true witness, counseling them, calling them away from their self-styled riches, pleading with them to repent, promising to supply every need. He holds before them the wonderful promise of fellowship, and he holds it before you today. And he closes with the amazing promise that in one step you may go from the Laodicean state to his very throne. Oh, how great is the grace of God. Poor, blind, and naked they most assuredly were. But his counsel is that they might receive from him gold tried in the fire. This would change their poverty into riches. He offers them white raiment, that their nakedness might be covered. He offers them eye salve, that their blindness might be cured. Some people have found a difficulty in that the Lord's counsel should be to buy these riches from him. With what shall we purchase, and are these things for sale? Oh, listen to the great invitation in Isaiah. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. 
and he that hath no money, come ye, buy, and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Oh, we are quite aware that all of God's gifts are gifts of grace. Yet none of these further blessings can come to the believer without some spending of self. We have only so many minutes in the day. We can spend them all on ourselves, or we can reserve some for the things of God. A knowledge of the Word of God costs something in time, in determined effort to turn away from the bubbles that Satan would hold out to us. We must buy the truth and sell it not, also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Always Satan and the flesh will desire to put the study and the meditation just a little later in the day. A Chinese preacher has adopted for himself the rule, no Bible, no breakfast. And if rigorously carried out, this will prove a price well spent. Stop and ask yourself if today and yesterday you have spent more time on the newspaper and the comic strip than upon the eternal word of God. Now we are not saying that reading the newspaper is a sin. But we are saying that first things must come first, and that if necessary, we must pay the price of being less informed on what is happening round about us in order that we may be more informed on the Word and the ways of God. Now, what are these symbols used here? What is this gold that is tried in the fire? And again, we go back to the concordance for our explanation. In Psalms, David sings of the glories of God's revelation in the heavens and in his Word. Successively, he refers to the law of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord. Then he says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Now, fine gold is the jeweler's way of expressing gold that has been refined in the fire. And in another psalm, we read, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, purified seven times. So then the call of the Lord to Laodicea is to come back to the Word of God. The poverty of this church lies in the fact that the Word of God is not given its proper place. In our theological seminaries, men are too often taught much about the Bible, but not true expository preaching. Pick up one of our great metropolitan dailies on any Monday morning and read the summaries of the sermons that have been preached in the churches of our cities the day before. Politics, economics, literature, social service, ethics, philosophy, and plain bombast are all to be found in the record. But in how few is there any indication of any real knowledge of the plan of God? Oh, some indeed still retain a biblical text as a point of departure, but too frequently that departure has no return. Laodicea's pride is fattened on sermons. Laodicea's soul is starved for the Word of God. It is our opinion that no minister has a right to preach a sermon that shall be no more than a polite moral essay. If sermons were banned from our churches for a time, and if the periods were made purely and simply one of Bible study, with a copy of the Bible in the hands of every person in the pews, with a rustle of the turning leaves following the preacher's exposition, then the Holy Spirit would breathe upon that church and infuse it with new life. Now next in our text, the Lord counsels the Laodiceans to buy of him white raiment that thou mayest clothe thyself, and the shame of thy nakedness be not made manifest. Now in the Psalms we read that it is the Lord himself who clothes himself with light as with a garment. We remember in Matthew 17 that the transfigured Lord has garments that were as white as the light. 
And later in this book of Revelation, we're told that the bride is to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness, and in the Greek the word is plural, the righteousness as of the saints. Good works in the Bible sense of the term, a definite following after righteousness, these are commanded by God. Failure to have them is contrary to sound doctrine, we read in Timothy. Now the Laodicean is naked because his life is not producing good works in God's sight. These can come only when we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Finally, the Lord counsels the Laodicean to come to him for eye salve, so that his eyes might be anointed, that he might see. The anointing in the scripture is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Without this, there can be nothing acceptable to God. There may be might and power, but this is not God's method for the life of the church. Do we not read in Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Oh, how many churches there are today which are dependent upon might and power. Every committee is organized, everything functions smoothly. Every contingency is taken care of, and yet they are blind. Thinking that they see, their blindness is all the more terrible. But when we have the eye salve which comes from the Lord, the anointing which ye received from him abideth in you, and ye need not that anyone teach you. But as his anointing teacheth you concerning all things, and is true and is no lie, and even as it is taught you, you abide in him. How he wants to supply all this wonderful merchandise to his children. He stands and pleads with them to take it. He is willing to cause them some pain if only they see their need. As many as I love, he says, I convict and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The verses that have preceded are indeed one of the sharpest rebukes in the whole of the Bible. Does this proceed from a heart of judgment or a heart of love? Surely the latter. One of the Lord's definite ways of working is revealed here. He does not want to punish his children. No one is more delighted than he when hearts turn in simple yieldedness for full communion and fellowship. He knows us so well. Some will come at the first call of love. Others must have the sternest rebuke. Still others, unheeding the rebuke, must feel the stroke of his rod. Thus he calls them to be zealous. Zeal is consuming. It is the opposite of lukewarmness. It is the call to be on fire for him. And there now follows the great invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. The Christ we see in this letter to Laodicea is a pleading, all-providing, loving, disciplining Lord. The climax that is reached here is to let these poor Laodiceans know that he is near at hand, that they can count upon him to deliver the supplies they so sorely need, and at the very moment when they shall make their first gesture towards them. It is the picture of a wealthy father whose son launches out into business for himself, and who tells the son that he's ready to stand back of him and can be called upon for supply in any emergency. But here the emergency has come. The Lord sees the need of the church, though the church does not see its own need. He warns, he rebukes, he loves, and he says, I am here to give you all that you need, most of all myself in fellowship and in communion. 
He wants to come in and sup. Supper is the last meal of the day. There will be no more table fellowship till the day dawns and the shadows flee away. Centuries have passed since the apostle said, The night is far spent and the day is at hand. If we shall sup with our Lord in fellowship before the night ends, we shall have a foretaste of the divine glory that is about to break upon the world. Well, what is Laodicea going to do? The Lord stands so near. He brings all supplies with him. If only the door shall be opened, full communion shall be entered into immediately. What does Laodicea do? Eternity alone will reveal the answer, some in glory on his throne, some spewed from his mouth. And this invitation is the narrowest in all the letters to the churches. In Thyatira there was a remnant, in Sardis there were a few names. But here it is, if any man hear my voice. Do we see here that as the centuries roll on, the wheat is producing a hundredfold, then sixtyfold, and then only thirtyfold? At any rate, no heart can refuse the invitation on the ground that it belongs to a whole church. It is for the individual. And now we come to the last promise to the overcomer. The one that overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who leaves Laodicean lukewarmness, who recognizes the depths of his need, who turns away from self, who buys the full supply that the Lord gives without money and without price, shall rise to the very throne of heaven. There is a most important teaching hidden now in this verse. There are those who think that the church is the kingdom and that there is to be no literal kingdom upon the earth. But here the Lord says that at the present time he is not upon his own throne. He is yet seated upon his father's throne. He has therefore one purpose. He lives to make intercession for us. The individual who, even in the midst of apostasy and lukewarmness, turns to Christ and passes out of death and into life shall be a part of that glorious company clothed in light that makes up the bride, which is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. His throne is about to be established. His kingdom is about to begin. The church is not the kingdom. The description of the things which are comes to its close. And now we turn in the revelation to the things which shall be after these. In future studies we shall see him rise from his father's throne. And not yet seated on his own, we shall hear the burst of song of all the angelic hosts when the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Then his throne will be set up, and in that glorious day the bride, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, will be presented unto himself, and to the praise of the glory of his grace shall reign from the throne of the Son of God forever. And now for the seventh and last time comes the call, powerful in its recurring rhythm. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We shall hear it no more in our study of the book. True, it shall sound again for the men of the tribulation age. If any man have an ear, let him hear. But the spirit and the church will be in heaven, and the call must come from the word alone. But today, the age of grace still runs. The sevenfold call still sounds forth. The spirit still speaks. May everyone who listens to these words take heed to this call. And our God, we pray that he use to thine honor and glory that which is given forth today. In Jesus' name, amen.